Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Dr. Hannah Critchlow reporting for the Naked Scientists at the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies Conference in Spain, where over 7,000 neuroscientists from around the world have converged to discuss neuroscience findings fresh from the research labs. Here's a snapshot roundup of some of the highlights from the first 24 hours of the meeting. More extensive interviews will be published with these speakers after the conference. First up, we are constantly being bombarded by information from our outside world. Signals coming in through our eyes, our ears, sense of touch, motion and taste. But how do we process all of that information and make sense of the world around us? Professor Michael Hauser from University College London has been trying to comprehend this by zooming in, looking at brain cells and finding out how just the branches of these nerve cells, the dendrite, computes input signals. Ultimately, we want to understand the neural code. We want to understand how the brain is processing and representing and storing and transforming information. And what we've shown is that actually a key element of this process is already taking place on the single-cell level and even on the level of single dendrites. Looking at brain cells in the dish and playing in patterns of input into the dendrites, we can show that already single dendrites can start to read out the sequence of information that's being represented by the pattern of input. And this is very exciting for us because it tells us that even a small piece of a neuron, even a small part of a brain cell, can already do an interesting computation. And it means that there's a tremendous richness in the computational capabilities just of a single brain cell. Experiments in intact animals are in turn showing us that these kind of mechanisms that we've been able to probe in brain cells in the dish are actually engaged during sensory processing. And in particular, we're looking at the visual system and we're showing how these specialized dendritic properties can be engaged when the cell is receiving visual information from the outside world. Once we understand the neural code, then of course we can take this information and start to see, for example, what goes wrong during disease and potentially also come up with new therapies based on our understanding of how the neural code operates. So, understanding how a single nerve cell and how even a small part of a nerve cell computes information will help us to understand how the brain as a whole, which contains over 100 billion nerve cells with 100 trillion connections, processes and stores information. Another scientist that I caught up with today, Professor Corey Bergman from Rockefeller University in New York, is presenting her findings from watching worms having sex and eating together. Why has she been doing this? Well, to find out how genes control flow of information in circuits across the nervous system to regulate behaviour. In my lab, we study a tiny worm called Cenorhabditis elegans. You might find it out in your garden in the compost heap. And the reason we studied this little animal instead of studying big animals or people is that 
It has a very simple brain with just 300 neurons, and we can look at its brain while it's behaving, and we can understand what genes are doing to change its brain and its behavior. Now, even though the swarm is very simple, it shares many genes with people, and even some of the genes that it uses for social behaviors are related to the genes that humans use for their social behaviors. So we can use these genes as like a Rosetta Stone to go between different animals and compare behaviors and the biology of behavior. And I'm thinking now about little worms in in my back garden having social behaviours. Are worms sociable? What kind of social behaviours do they have? Well, one kind of social behaviour that every animal has is reproductive behaviour. They have to find other members of their species and mate with them. And that's one of the behaviours we study is that process of recognition and knowing when you have a mate, carrying out a mating behaviour. Another kind of behaviour they have is that they just like to be together. If you look at them eating, they'd much rather feed together in a group with other worms, even if there's no sex going on at all. And what we found is that that behavior varies based on genes and on the environment. So some worms are very friendly, and they want to spend almost all their time with other worms. And other worms are a little more independent, and they'll spend a lot of time alone and just a little time with worms. And that's based on different genetic mutations that these worms have that make them act differently from each other. And can you see how these genes, these different mutations, then affect how the nerve cells form a a circuit and then how that affects the social behaviour? Yes. What we try to do is we try to understand what it is that's changing when the gene changes to allow the behavior to be different. Now, the neural circuit, the worm's brain, develops the same in both cases, and both worms have the potential to show both behaviors. It's just that their likelihood of showing one or the other is different. The sort of threshold that they have to cross to interact with other worms is different. And that happens because the gene that we study strengthens the flow of information through one of two alternative ways that the brain can process social behavior. So the worm is, in a way, ambivalent. It knows that it can either be with other worms or avoid them. And this gene strengthens the flow of traffic in one direction and weakens it in the other direction. It's sort of like a traffic cop that's making information flow to the left or to the right. So behaviour can change quickly without requiring the growth of new neuronal connections. Instead, Corey Bergman's results in worms suggest that the nervous system is rapidly altered by expression of a gene coding for a brain protein called neuropeptide, which acts a bit like a traffic policeman directing the flow of information across circuits or roadways in the brain, and in this way affects behaviour. These neuropeptides also exist in humans, and it's thought that they act as pointers for information, affecting behaviour circuits in humans too. Now, moving from social eating to deciding what we might like to eat. How do we make up our minds? We are continuously faced with choices in life. How do we weigh up our options and make decisions? Dr Matthew Rushworth from Oxford University has been putting people in scanners and photographing the activity in the frontal lobe, the region at the front of the brain, whilst they make simple decisions like choosing what to eat or doing gambling tasks, choosing different shapes and colours and receiving monetary rewards based on their decisions. He explains his findings. You can actually see different parts of the frontal lobe doing different things. You can see some regions that are comparing together how good it would be to do one thing rather than another thing. 
There are other regions that are learning and revising the values of different choices as we gather more and more experience of making those choices. And there are even brain regions that are tracking how good it would have been to have done something else other than what we did. So regions of the brain that are tracking how good it would have been to have taken a different course of action. It's something that many people would be aware of uh, when they make a choice. There's some nagging voice in the, in the back of their mind telling them how good it would have been to have done something else. And I think what we're looking at is the sort of brain correlates of that, the activity in the brain, the pattern of activity in the brain that actually corresponds to that feeling of how good it might have been to have done something different. And so how are, you, how are your results, how are your findings moving this, this field of neuroscience on? There are various ways in which the results that are presented today uh, hopefully change the way in which we, th- we think about the frontal lobes. I think they also have some very sort of broad implications for how we think about what happens when decision-making and choice doesn't work properly. So there are many different psychiatric illnesses, for example, uh, where the defining feature is the fact that people make unusual decisions, they make unusual choices, and they don't seem to learn from their experiences in the same way as, as somebody who's healthy does. And I, I'd like to think that some of the, some of the brain mechanisms that, that we've been investigating would tell us something about what's going wrong in some of these unfortunate cases. And the final question for you. How does your research impact on the question of free will? So in some ways I suppose that what we're interested in in doing is looking at how it is that people exercise their free will. So we're interested in looking at how it is that people make a decision where there's nothing that's actually constraining them to do one thing or another. And we're seeing how patterns of activity are generated in the brain that represent one possible course of action, another possible course of action, and then how these patterns of activity are, as it were, sort of put in conflict with one another so that the best pattern wins, and that's the choice that we take. So I don't think that it has any, any implication that somehow or the other we're automatons or that we can't make choices. Instead, it's really trying to do the opposite and trying to explain what's going on when we actually make free choices of our own free will. That was Dr Matthew Rushworth from Oxford University. I'm Naked Scientist Dr Hannah Critchlow, giving you a snapshot of the first full day of the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies meeting. Catch up tomorrow when I'll be finding out about new treatments on the horizon for autism and Alzheimer's disease and we'll be uncovering how your immune system can attack your brain. More extensive interviews with all of the scientists that I've spoken with will be published on the Naked Scientist website after the conference.